Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Ben Link and Dr. Matthew Wine. Dr. Link is the Vice President at 3Axis Advisors and President at 46 Brooklyn, and Dr. Wine is the Drug Supply Chain Informatics Specialist at 3Axis Advisors and Contributor at 46 Brooklyn. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Hey, it's, the pleasure's all mine. I'm a huge fan of your work, and this is one of those things that we could probably talk for a long time on, but we're going to try and make this into one podcast episode with some of the work that you just released. In fact, one of the things you guys just dropped, I believe it was on March 7th, so like last week, that is a hugely impactful piece that you put together called Deserving of Better, How American Seniors Are Paying for Misaligned Incentives Within Medicare Part D. Can you describe what this thing that you produce, document, paper, research project, whatever you want to call it, is and kind of like what, how you found it for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is independent pharmacy. So I had spent a lot of time behind the bench. And one thing that I had always noticed was that drug prices were increasing like every other pharmacist and everybody else who goes to purchase drug medication or prescription medications. So we were terribly interested in seeing how that transitioned into the Part D program specifically around the fact that we have seen where gross price in the Medicare drug plan has increased, but net prices have stayed relatively similar, so or has stayed under control. So we wanted to see how that how that transitioned into the, into the Part D program and what that really meant to beneficiaries and other stakeholders. Yeah, just to add there, right, the Medicare program is a critical health care program for our nation's seniors. That's how most of them are going to access not only hospital and doctors, but prescription drugs. And we inevitably get asked time and time again in the various lines of work that we have, whether it's three axis at 46 Brooklyn, to do more analysis on Medicare. We kind of got our our start in Medicaid, Medicaid data is much more readily accessible and understandable, but inevitably people ask us, so what about Medicare? And it makes sense if you follow the dollars, right? Medicare is a close to $200 billion annual spend in drugs versus Medicaid is $70 billion. And all of those are pre-price concession, pre-rebates numbers. So, you know, studying this in our nation seniors gave us a great opportunity to explore some of the incentives that our supply chain is creating and to really demonstrate how an understanding of, say, drug pricing benchmarks like average wholesale price, AWP contracts, which dominate the industry as your own podcast has touched on in the past, as well as what we might learn from new approaches to pay for drugs, like with Medicaid's experience with national average drug acquisition costs. Yeah, so you hit on two key parts there. And I've obviously looked at this in my role of kind of what contracts look like and things like that. And I've got contracts that play in both currently. But, you know, can you kind of elaborate on the importance of AWP and NADAC, especially as it relates to your work here with Medicare Part D? Because as you said, Medicare Part D is roughly three times the spend of Medicaid. And when you think of polypharmacy as a pharmacist, you generally think of those older people who've got multiple chronic conditions. So I think that's super important to kind of dive into here. Sure. So I'll go first, and then uh, Matt, you can go ahead and add. I would say that your own experience and the experience of most pharmacists 
if they've dabbled in drug pricing at all, is that there is this brokenness around the price. We engage in contracts to average wholesale price, which is a fake, artificially inflated drug price. We know it doesn't really mean anything, despite its name suggesting that it has relevance to our supply chain. There have been lawsuits over AWP and demonstrated instances where the supply chain has arbitraged AWP pricing for its benefit. I'm thinking of the 2006 lawsuits between First Data Bank and McKesson, as well uh, as plan sponsors, where, you know, over time, they increased the ratio between AWP and other pricing benchmarks. And so, despite that being almost, you know, two decades ago, we still have our supply chain dominated by these contracts. And if you don't understand what AWP is and the incentive it creates, it's really hard to have informed conversations around the incentives of why drugs cost so much. Yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, you hit on some huge points there when it comes to like knowing kind of what these contracts are, how there's been lawsuits ongoing for some time. Pharmacists have been raising the alarm and things like that. And I know when I read it too, like AWP and some of the clawbacks and the misaligned or arbitrage incentives, as you called it, it's always hard to tell exactly like when that is. Is it when, is it when you sell the drug? Is it like six months later when they start averaging the price, things like that? What did you find that you could like, you know, zero in on as a main point of like, here is where it's happening and here's a good example and here's how much cost savings it would kind of have for the, for the government or for the out-of-pocket for the patient or what have you? When we did our study, we broke it into two separate groups or two separate kind of studies. So one was a overall study of, of a basically a six-month period. Second piece of that was a 30-month study of, a, of the largest uh, Part D plan in our data set. So we basically looked to see which plan represented the majority of our pharmacies or the pharmacies that we had or that we were able to receive data from. And we had one plan that uh, was uh, that had claimed 98% of the pharmacies that we collected data. The latter study looked at two different pieces there. So in the 30-month study, we looked at what was happening at the point of sale or at the pharmacy counter that that price that the patient is exposed to. And then we, we stepped it a little deeper and we looked to see um, what, what the estimated pharmacy DIR was. And we wanted to see how the price changed over that 30 month period. So we looked at 2019, 2020, and 2021. What was that AWP discount that the beneficiary or the patient was experiencing at the pharmacy counter? Was it increasing? Was it decreasing? And what happened with the DIR fees? What we saw or what we were able to kind of determine was is on brands, that AWP discount decreased, which may sound backwards, but when it decreases, we're not getting as high of a discount, which means that that price is going to be higher for the patient. So it was around 16% or AWP minus 16 in 2019. And that went down to 12.2 in 2021. So if you step back for a second, what that means is, is a drug, if the price didn't change between 2019 and 2021, 
the beneficiary would have a higher price in 2021. So if we just removed all manufacturer price increases and we just looked at what that negotiated rate was, the patient would pay more. Likewise, we looked at the, the generic side, and this was even more shocking. So on the generic side, we saw where the discount was around 89.3, so 89% um, in 2019. That dropped drastically down to 83.9. So we had about a 6% 6, 6 decrease in AWP um, on the generic side on that 30-month analysis. We then stepped in to see what, what happened with the, the DIR fees. So we know that there was more money being paid or more pain being paid for the prescription drugs at the pharmacy counter. Was there larger price concessions or larger fees being reaped on the back end? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. So we noticed in 2019 that the average brand DIR fee was somewhere around $28. That jumped up to almost 50 in 2021. On the generic side for this large plan, we saw that the average generic DIR fee was somewhere around a dollar, dollar and 11 cents. That jumped up to $7 and 68 cents. So a lot of what was being, a lot of the additional revenue that was being paid to the pharmacy or the, at the negotiated rate was actually being taken back or actually being netted out to relatively a similar net AWP discount at the end of the day. Wow, that's, so that's a, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, there's not only been a lot of money, but I think that one of the important things to understand in interpreting this study is to understand how Medicare drug benefits work in general. I am actually, you know, I started my pharmacy career when Part D plans went live. I can remember being at the pharmacy at the start of, of January when everyone's cars are going to go active and the concern about, is this going to work? <laughs> and so, you know, the Medicare Part D program is not that old. It was passed in legislation in, what, 2003, and then the first, you know, kind of claims started transacting three years later in 2006. We are not that far removed from the start of this program, and the start of this program looks a lot different from other Medicare benefits like A and B, where, you know, at some level, the government is directly participating in setting a fee schedule. You know, you can go online right now, go to CMS's website, and get the reimbursement schedule for Part D drugs. Because the Part D plan uh, was designed with these private plan sponsors that were going to create this negotiated rate, which is important to note, pharmacy also at the table was advocating for this kind of arrangement where, you know, not all of these price concessions or otherwise might necessarily be marketed or, or, or displayed at the point of sale. They were concerned that if all that information was aggregated and cut out, it would hurt their ability to negotiate uh, with plan sponsors. Um, but having said that, what has changed over Part D over the years is a lot of the changes that have undergone Part D have been designed to make patient cost share less burdensome. We have increased the uh, support that patients get during the coverage gap or the donut hole to try and lessen the burden that uh, befalls members that end up during that time frame. I can remember, again, being at the pharmacy and having to help work with patients through their 
coverage yet. That was a very difficult conversation with patients at times. And so what our study is really highlighting in this 30-month analysis is that, you know, to the degree with which that is the goal that we want to measure program success for changes to the Part D benefit, we can see that because of the various incentives that exist to shift costs throughout the benefit stage to basically make the value that the patients are receiving from the program less because we're racing to catastrophic as we've talked about on 46 Brooklyn, it's really caused harm. And we can demonstrate that specifically and explicitly when we do a hypothetical analysis where we remove the influence of brand price changes. If we set a fixed brand cost and run it through the overall averages of reimbursement throughout the three-year time frame, we can see that the value got, you know, left the patient or they had to pay more for the same services because of the worsening reimbursement at the point of sale. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, and we're I'm gonna try and do it slowly. I don't want to steal your thunder. Um, I will say, you know, since you guys have uh, alluded this and just dropped this the other day, that that you do have a podcast out on this where you guys are going to awesomely nerd out over all this stuff. So this is gonna be a brief overview of some of this, but you guys are gonna put in a lot more work. So shameless plug for that for your guys' podcast. I will put a link in the show notes as well as a link to that study that you guys have. But with that, you know, you hit a few th- key things there. So these the dir fees are going up and up which obviously a lot of pharmacists and even listeners know about that and then the fees and everything else is going up government payment has generally went up and we're trying to minimize how much is coming out of the patient's pocket with these other ways of navigating that but ppm profits come up does as you dug into this this just seem like cut and dry that there's one incentive that's kind of pushing this and that might be ppm profits over everything else or was is that just something that people might be missing the boat on? I think there's incentives. Some of the studies that are referenced in our particular study references the fact that PBMs or plans are looking to reduce liability. We know that liability is the most for a plan when patients are in regular coverage. So if we can, whatever can be done to get a patient or a beneficiary out of regular coverage into a different phase, whether it be catastrophic coverage or the coverage gap, it reduces the liability for the plan. So if that transitions to dollars and for, for the plan, then, you know, that assumption can, can potentially be, be a case made. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit more specific there, right? So if you're not familiar with Part D plan design, uh, I would encourage you to, to read up on it. There's a lot of resources. Kaiser Family does it. There's the annual Medicare trustees report, which is hundreds of pages, which is if you're a fan of three axis is right in our ballpark of writing the report, <laughs> right? Uh, but Medicare is broken down into four overall phases. The deductible phase, which is just like a deductible that you or I or anyone else knows. The initial coverage phase, which operates more like what people, I think, generally think of as insurance. The coverage gap or the donut hole, where you basically have deductible 2.0. And then finally, catastrophic coverage, which is basically like a form of reinsurance where the government is saying, look, plan sponsors, we understand that you're concerned about your risk. We are offering you a basically a sales base. If claims get too expensive because you're covering the elderly in our country, we will help cover the cost. So in the deductible phase, the patient has 100% of the liability of any claim, right? 
That's what a deductible is. Mm -hmm. In the coverage gap, the initial coverage, the patient is going to pay 25%-ish of the cost, and the plan is going to be responsible for the other 75%. So, you know, keeping with nice round numbers, if it was a $100 claim, 25 is coming from the patient's pocket, 75 is coming from the plan's pocket. In the coverage gap, it varies depending upon whether you're talking about brand or generics. But as I alluded to earlier, one of the key things we did was make manufacturers have to help cover the cost during the coverage gap to basically help patients not experience as high of cost as well as get them through the gap first. And that is exactly what our Capaxone report and Tecfidera report at 46 Brooklyn talked about, the race through catastrophic or race to catastrophic coverage because at the end, in catastrophic coverage, the patient's liability is reduced finally down to 5%. The plan has 15 and the federal government has the rest. So just again, going through those phases very quickly, the one that the plan really cares about is the one where their liability is 75% of the cost, which is the initial coverage phase. And so if you make point of sale costs higher, people will go through the initial coverage faster. And so that means that the plan has reduced its liability, its risk, its financial skin in the game has shrunk by doing this. And if you follow the incentives of the system, is it any wonder that these are the actions that they're taking? And so as my you know, friend Antonio Chacha likes to say, right, we don't have a health insurance infrastructure in this country as we would think about it for drugs. We have managed care, which generally speaking just manages to make some people a lot of money. That's a really good quote from your your president over there at Three Access and former guest and friend of all of ours is Antonio Chacha, who's just done amazing work and always puts it in eloquent fashion. So I'm glad you quoted him on that. It's a little more relatable to some people who maybe aren't pharmacists. But yeah, I think that's really important. I'm going to have links to all that in the show notes too, because I think this is good research and that race to catastrophic is a really good point thing to point out here because as we start seeing certain generics might really push that further with how they get reimbursed versus other ones and all the different games that could play with pricing back and forth. So um, when we start diving into this and you guys started doing this work, like when did you said it was a 30 month review? How long ago did you start? How long did it take? And quite honestly, how the hell did you break the black box of the PBMs with this? Because it always seems like that there's all these numbers moving around. There's millions of claims and no one can really figure it out except maybe Antonio and a few other people. <laughs> well, this is, this is work that we've been doing for a long time now. This project didn't really have a definitive start date. You know, it started with just preliminary analysis that we were doing in other work. Uh, with pharmacy claims data where we started just doing comparisons. You know, what is Medicaid in a state charging for drugs and how does that compare to Medicare payments in that same state or in the overall? And, you know, again, every every time we seem to put out a, a Medicaid study in any way, shape, or form, the question gets asked, you know, well, what about Medicare? What about commercial, et cetera, et cetera? And so, you know, once we kind of started to do some of those preliminary analysis, it just started to coalesce into a more 
definitive narrative in terms of, hey, we really think we can help others understand what is going on here by just demonstrating them through the data. One of the things that I think, you know, we do a good job of is explaining our methods in pretty robust detail. The goal, of course, being that given the same access to data and performing the same transformations or what have you on the data, you almost have no choice but to arrive at the conclusions that we've reached. And what that means is that in order to challenge the conclusions, you have to be more transparent, right? You know, we are very clear in the study that the study has limitations. We, the data that we have access to is the, the pharmacies that participated might not be representative of Medicare as a whole. We can see differences in the brand dispensing rate in these claims versus the overall average for Medicare thanks to the data that, that they put up on CMS's actual website. But what we saw was that Medicare as a whole likely had higher rates of brand. And because the brands were associated with some of the you know, biggest added costs, ultimately our study of the data would lead to a more conservative estimate in terms of the impact that we are identifying is likely understated. And so if somebody else wanted to come in and study the data and use a more representative data set of the entirety of the program that had all of those missing brand claims, they would likely find that our results were understated and they were be more significant savings if we had the full data set. So in all of the all of our studies, we try to be very transparent with what we're doing under the goal of please come and check us. We're, we're not concerned really about whether that happens or not. We would welcome more people playing with data in this space to hopefully help, you know, educate, inform, what have you. Yeah, I, th I think that's key that you went conservative with it because it's kind of one of those things that you're not going to be chicken little, the sky is falling. If anything, it's like the opposite. You're like, hey, this is the minimum level impact based off of what our analysis is. If you dig in, you'll probably find more. And I think that's a good way of really framing that overall. What shocked you both the most with this study? Like what was the one thing that at the end of the day is like your take home point or the point that you were just like, Oh, good Lord, I wasn't ready for that information. So I'll jump back on to, we utilize NADAC, um, which tracks invoice costs for pharmacies. Um, so it's pretty representative of what a true cost of good is for a pharmacy. And I'll jump back to that generic side on the 30-month analysis where what we saw was is that the, the NADAC price actually produced a higher discount rate from 2019 to 2021. So that meant that generic drugs got cheaper for the pharmacy to buy. But what we saw on the actual experiences is that the prices at the pharmacy counter got significantly more expensive by about 30, 35 to 40%. So the fact that generic drugs got cheaper from our, from our NADAC pricing, but we saw a 35 to 40% increase in part D or in the particular plan was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of saying that that was the same, it's 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 very much the same for me, right? Is that 
I feel like one of the strongest takeaways of this study is, I believe it's figure 14, right, which is the comparison of basically the fixed AWB cost of the average in 2019 and just saying, look, if nothing changed in drug prices outside of what happened in these negotiated rates, the patient's cost for the drug got more expensive. We have in this country a multitude of ways with which we try to conceptualize a drug's price. And one of the key challenges with understanding drug pricing and understanding the value that drugs offer is that when there are so many different ways to capture what a drug's price is, there is effectively no price. And that is another quote I stole from Antonio. This study helps highlight how the role of intermediaries can determine patient pay amount. And it's also true that the role of those intermediaries, i.e. PBMs, is often stated by, you know, themselves as being insignificant. You know, they say that the drug manufacturer's prices, you know, are the ones that are responsible for drug pricing because it's you know, quantifiable that they're going up year over year. And so, of course, the prices that they're negotiating are going to go up as well. And again, I would say that there is some truth to that statement, but it's not the whole truth. And we didn't even talk about in this study, you know, the role of pharmacy set prices, pharmacy set usual and customary prices, which also determine what a reimbursement structure is going to be. And the fact of the matter is, is that generally speaking, they're going to set high reimbursements because they have no idea what reimbursement that they can reasonably expect. Something we've also studied in other reports, such as our Massachusetts or uh, Florida Medicaid reports at 3-axis. And so the key things to take away from this or what, what the shock value should be is that until we can agree on price, we will never have informed and reasonable discussions about the value of any pharmaceutical in this country. I think those are that's a great take on point is the Antonio Chacha quote there of if you have multiple prices, you effectively have no price. And if we can't agree on it, that yeah, <laughs> what are we what are we even kind of arguing over for lack of a better term? Um, I'm going to try and put all these in the show notes again, listeners, but if not, please go check out three access advisors. They have all this on there, put on your little nerd glasses and just go read it. Cause it's amazing stuff, but you know, you might want some coffee cause it can be a little bit long sometimes with some of these things between three access and 46 Brooklyn, but it's well worth it. So you can be informed. I will plug that all day with this. All right. So I did want to get to like actionable steps, right? So we've been going on for a while here and what can come of that? Like, what are three actionable steps that you think should be taken to fix what we clearly think is a broken or misaligned system without majorly disrupting care to patients? Like, that's the ultimate goal, right? We want to take care of people. So what are like maybe three actionable steps that could be taken here? My first step would be transparency, right? We need to find a way to agree on what the service costs. And there's going to be challenges along the way. We heavily rely upon NADAC in our work because we think it is the best, most readily explainable and quantifiable transparent price in the market, but we do acknowledge its 
limitations. But if you want drug pricing to be less uh, or to be more devoid of misaligned incentives, consider this. Today, as a pharmacist, as a doctor of pharmacy in this country, your services are largely played for via drug pricing arbitrage. Buy the drug low, sell it high. You do not really receive good reimbursement for a professional service, whether that is counseling or what have you. The, the dispensing fee before the act of giving medications to patients is generally speaking less than a quarter, right? When we know and can quantify that it needs to be $10 by cost of dispensing surveys. And so it's not that pharmacists aren't, you know, making that money because obviously there's plenty of pharmacies still operating in this country. It's that they're arbitraging the price to, you know, keep the doors open. And the analogy I like to use in explaining this is it's like if all of a sudden tomorrow Google was to ask you to pay to run search results, right? That is a service that you and I have been getting for free for immense value. But if all of a sudden we're asked to pay for that value, our behavior might change, but that's precisely what's kind of needed in pharmacy reimbursement and payment reform, right? Is recognizing that if you want drug pricing to be more transparent and quantifiable, that's going to come at the cost of paying pharmacists for their services. Uh, so number one actionable step is transparency around the price. And a lot of the pricing benchmarks that we have are towards the extreme ends of the supply chain. Tons of different ways to capture manufacturer price, AMP, ASP, WAC. All of those benchmarks are ways to calculate what manufacturers are doing in releasing products to this country. MAC rates, usual and customary, NADAC, those are ways that we attempt to quantify price at the pharmacy counter, but we don't have a lot of ways to calculate price points that are being created in the middle. What are the markups that PBMs are taking amongst health plans? What are the markups that PBMs are taking against pharmacy providers? What are the markups that wholesalers are taking between the pharmacy and the manufacturer? I, I agree. I think transparency is a good one. That's a good first actual step. What about a uh, second one there? You probably can tell that Ben and I work together. So I was very, uh, what Ben is preaching is very much of what my similar thoughts were. This one may not be super popular, but as we've seen in the Medicaid program, having a conversation around a ceiling on reimbursement. I'm not saying that there's not going to be profitability, and that comes with the trade-off of um, a true cost to dispense, right? So we talk about having a, a true true fee that covers the cost of a pharmacy, but we see a lot of arbitrage in the pharmacy world. So we see differentials in payment between pharmacies and pharmacies that may be affiliated with PBMs. So having some sort of, of ceiling would potentially help to offset some of that arbitrage and make a more more a, a playing field that is, is, is more equitable. Okay. So making sure that we kind of level set the payment amongst the pharmacies. So for lack of a better term, the Walgreens across the street will be getting paid similar or the same as the independent across the street. Maybe less if they're preferred in network or something like that. Yeah, and, and even to the next step, you know, the, the specialty pharmacy is getting the same. We've, we've seen in our other works, you know, differential payments for the same drug dispensed at different pharmacy chains. Another, another prime example where, 
You know, the, the manufacturer isn't setting any different price uh, in terms of a whack or what have you on those drugs, but yet the supply chain is producing, recognizing different costs for the drugs depending upon the provider. Gotcha. All right. And then so the, the third actionable step there? So the third actionable step, I think, is going to have to be continued knowledge of the issue, right? One of the things that I get most concerned about in the work that we do is that we will produce all of this data and such and provide a interpretation of the data and that the people that are ultimately going to be impacted by policy changes might not understand all the impacts of potential policy changes. And a, a good example to use of what I mean here is there was this, you know, story of during World War II, they brought in this mathematician to study uh, fighter planes that were coming back and they, you know, saw where the bullet holes were and they were going to reinforce the armor where these, you know, planes took the damage at. And he made the point that, well, maybe these planes are returning because that's not the critical spot. Maybe everywhere where there's not bullet point holes is actually the stuff that needs more reinforcement, right? Because those are the planes that when they get hit there, they're not returning. And so we all are going to bring our own set of biases, our own life experiences into interpretation of any data set. And, you know, the best solutions to problems are really going to be found if we have an informed conversation of the pros and cons of the trade-offs. For example, everything that we've been talking about in relation to Medicare and some of the problems it's faced is largely controlled in a Medicaid context, right? Medicaid makes a lot of money in rebates, but patient cost share is fixed. You can't have more than like an $8 copay for drugs. And so even if there are these warped incentives around higher list prices that produce greater rebates, patients aren't being exposed to that game. And so we need to have an informed conversation, and an informed conversation starts with continued education. And as people become more educated, they can better shop for the services that they want to purchase, better healthcare literacy, and they can better understand, you know, say, the options of the Medicare plans that they might sign up for or the employer-sponsored plans that they have access to. You know, it's funny you say that because I remember so many times when I would look at a prescription where I previously worked, it would be like, your insurance saved you $125. And I'm like, I bought the drug for $15 and they paid me $5. <laughs> it really didn't save any, like, where is this $125 coming from? So it kind of goes to that continued education of, you know, let's make sure that this is transparent. Let's let uh, level set and then also make sure there's continuing analysis, research and education on it. So it kind of like encapsulates everything you say there in like one little thing that used to print on like one leaflet at the pharmacy counter, which I think is kind of funny because it's like that one number just has so much that context that goes to it. So it's a really good call out. So thank you for that, Matt and Ben. Uh, now, I, I can't let you guys go without one plugging again. You have a podcast out. I'm going to link stuff to your guys' website. 
to mainly three access, but again, check out 46 Brooklyn. If you really want to kind of nerd out over some of the things, my personal favorite read was the one on Omeprazole that came out about how much profitability there was in that drug, just because it was very eye opening. I didn't think of it that way. Um, but anyway, I can't let you guys go without getting the two questions I ask everyone from each of you. So you guys can lead with whoever, but if you could each change one thing in pharmacy that isn't a law, maybe like a cultural or a systemic thing, what would it be? Man. Um, <laughs> that, that's appropriate. That's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, I'll start, Matt. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead. Here. I think I would change something culturally, and that culture would be leaning into more the fact that we are basically the only healthcare profession that collects our fee directly from the patient. You get services from a nurse or a dentist or a doctor or what have you. you know, generally speaking, those bills occur later in time. And maybe the dentist is a bad example, but you know, if you go to the hospital, you're not swiping your credit card before the procedure even out the door, you're going to get a bill several months in the rears, and sometimes that bill can be catastrophic for your personal finances. I mean, there's a reason why medical debt is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy, and I argue it's largely not directly tied to drug costs because at least at the pharmacy counter, you know what it's going to cost to walk out with that service, and a pharmacist well positioned with adequate resources to help counsel you through that experience can help you find a lower cost option, even if it's not quote unquote, the best option for your therapy. So obviously the example I'm thinking of is like rapid acting insulin as opposed to like an intermediate mixed insulin, right? You're still getting insulin, even if it's not the ideal. We get so much, I think, as a profession, flack from patients. You know, the Jim Gaffers and jokes, what do the pharmacists do behind the counter but just, like, try and throw pills into the bottle from across the room? Right? God, that gives me, like, PTSD yeah, when people are... say that. <laughs> <laughs> right? But if we, I think, more embrace what our service role really can be to patients, you know, we have the best possible position to make the most profound impact on people's lives. Because at the end of the day, you know, as we've said many times throughout Three Axis of Life, we're all about following the incentive. And that extends to us as patients, right? You know, the incentive of where our dollars are going and the health that we're hopefully buying through the purchases of those are something we should all take a vested interest in getting right. You know, um, so I, I, I like that. I like that for so many reasons because it also switched the dynamic that I have a lot of problems with in pharmacy where people will say, how many customers do you have? Like, I don't have any customers. I have patients. Like there's a big legal difference here. And, mm -hmm. and it's huge because <laughs> I've, I've actually had one of the clinical pharmacists I work with where he started working with a diabetic and he brought their A1C down from like 13 to like nine, which nine isn't great, but it's a hell of a lot better than 13. And that couldn't have happened if he wasn't positioned where he was with his knowledge of pharmacy, patient experiences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's also a good shift in the dynamic. So I think that's a, a great call. Matt, what was yours? 
Yeah, and I think um, I'd like to see a, a greater integration into the healthcare system. So a lot of times we as pharmacy sometimes sit on an island outside by ourselves, right? Um, we're not directly um, collaborating with providers. So I would like to see a shift where pharmacy um, was utilized to a higher capacity, right? So whether that's through somehow integrating technology to facilitate communication between providers and, and patients and, and pharmacies, um, that's basically what I think I would really like to, to see. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, how many times do we see as pharmacists, we don't have access to an EHR and we are truly on an island there, but then some of our metrics are like, well, if you want me to chase that, I really need EHR access. And they're like, oh, well, sorry, only hospitals have that. You're like, well, then why am I being measured by it? So it's a whole new discussion. All right, so either one can go first here on this one again. If you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, I think you guys might lean federal with this topic we're going on, but either way, federal or state, what would it be and why? If I could change one law, it's going to be kind of weird, but let me explain. I would change substitution laws. Most substitution laws are set at the state level, and they rely upon the orange book, uh, the bioequivalent AB rating, because the FDA got tired of state boards of pharmacy or other state regulatory bodies calling up and asking them whether things could be substituted or not, right? I think where we're at today, there is a reasonable degree of drug classes where there is sufficient therapeutic overlap that those drugs could basically be viewed as more or less equivalent. And to give an example here, consider like ultra-rapid insulin, whether it's Humalog or Novolog, right? If you have a new start for a patient, what is the difference of the pharmacy dispensing one of those options over the other? And think of the potential benefits if pharmacy had the ability to, A, use its clinical muscles to do that. But, you know, more to the point, health plans want one choice over the other because of the rebates and other cost price concessions that they're negotiating. So if we're looking to lower health care costs, such a change in substitution laws offers health plans a better, more accessible way to get lower drug costs. Patients would like to pay the least amount of money for their drugs. If you dispense a preferred option as opposed to a non-preferred option, patients will save money. And A, they'll be more likely to start therapy because they don't have to jump through the hoops of prior authorization or other forms of treatment delays. Doctors, you know, I know that they're very concerned about giving up the control of the prescription patent, you know, perhaps nurse practitioners as well. But in this instance, They've already done the prescribing, and I don't want to take anything away from the decision-making that went into that, but pharmacists are well-recognized for their drug expertise knowledge and can certainly help patients work through, you know, transitioning from one agent to the other. So we could save doctors and nurse practitioners and other, you know, admin staff a lot of time in doing prior authorization. And finally, it represents a way for pharmacists to grow as a profession beyond just say, dispensing pills. And I know that this is kind of like what quote-unquote collaborative practice arrangements are supposed to target, but those are very narrowly construed documents, generally speaking. And so if there was broad recognition that like any rapid-acting insulin or SGLT2 or DDT4 or an inhaler or just select drug classes of say your, you know, cardiovascular, uh, endocrine, mostly diabetes, and respiratory drugs, you know, your 
Simba courts versus your ad fairs of the world. If those drugs could be in a category of therapeutic interchange that was more open, I think it's a win for the entire system. You know, before you go ahead, Matt, I am going to say here that Ben, I could not agree with that more. Like literally that is like one of the banes of my existence when I worked in community pharmacy as a, you know, pharmacy manager, because so many times a doctor would send over a prescription and, you know, let's not blame them on this, but they would send it over and just type in pro air. Cause they know that's what the patient asked for. And it would say albuterol HFA pro air, but because they, it said pro air, I couldn't switch to ventilator, which was generally the one covered. And I actually had a nurse practitioner where I work currently come to me and she's like, what do I have to do so pharmacy gets off my back about albuterol? I'm like, you need to put an albuterol HFA and then put in the comments Proair, albuterol, or Proair, Ventolin, and Proventil, whichever is covered by insurance, pharmacist discretion. I'm like, that will basically cover it. But the fact that it's a freaking albuterol inhaler that we're arguing over pennies and wasting everybody's time to try and get this fixed is just asinine. And that what you're talking about would fix that problem alone, never mind the bigger ones of like, Eh, Basig or Basiglar, you know, Levamir, whatever you have, Lantis, that honestly they really don't care. Pharmacists just, hey, make sure it's they're getting the same effect out of it. And you know that better than I do, so why not? We just empower you to do that. So I feel like I just unloaded a lot there, but I couldn't agree with you more. So, Matt, if you could go ahead and give your – what law would you change? Yeah, I'm just going to – I'm going to go in a different direction here. So last two years have just been really tough. In, in the field for pharmacists, right? So they've been asked to do a lot, contributed a lot. I'd like to see some sort of effort. I know it has happened in some states, but um, work environments. So pharmacists are working 12-hour shifts, asked to do more with less, making huge contributions. Um, just would like to see um, the standards addressed in the work environment. That's also a monster topic of mine that I will be talking about at APHA mid-year this year with Dr. Blood Tanaway of Hashtag Pizzas Networking. So, uh, listeners, if th this episode should get out before that, but you will hear me speak on that in a formal setting for pharmacy. So, I honestly, this has been a great episode, guys. I love it. Everything you, you're talking about is, like, really close to my heart. Even though it might be nerdy and dollar sense wise I tend to nerd out myself. So, I think it's it's a great topic to go on. Where is a great, the best place for people to find you if they want to reach out? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter, or just Three Access Advisors? For me personally, it's best if you reach out on LinkedIn if you're looking to get a hold of of Ben. Uh, but if you're more broadly interested in our work, definitely info at Three Access Advisors or the same for 46Brooklyn.com um, are almost certainly uh, ways to get a quick response from anyone on the team. If I would just second that with LinkedIn and Antonio, I think the same way. So we all same, same, same there. Awesome. Hey, I, again, you guys keep fighting the good fight. I think we're having some major wins with this. You are having major wins with this, but it's really, it's helping pharmacists. It's helping patients. And I, you know, if we're helping the profession and you're helping patients, I don't know what else you could do more for this country at this point. I just think that when you're looking at the, the dollars of Medicaid, Medicare, that's almost $300 billion combined. That's a lot of money, and if you could cut that down by even marginal fractions, it's serious money. So thank you for the work you're doing. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you because it's exposing major issues in healthcare that just need to be flat out exposed. So thank you. Well, thank you, too, for running this. I mean, ultimately, most of the things that we would like to see changed 
don't happen without political will. So it's important to, to, you know, draw the lines and the connections between data and such and, you know, the, the, the craziness that is politics. So more power <laughs> to you for taking that ball and running with it. You know, I can't always have the major wins like daylight savings time on the pharmacy politics podcast, but uh, you know, <laughs> hey, it's it's one of those things that if if we can have our wins, I feel like pharmacy is one of those weird things like daylight savings time that's pretty much party neutral and everyone wants to work on it. So if it's what it takes to get it out there, I will gladly use this platform to get the nerd data out there so that we can have effective change and substantive substantive arguments in this country. So Thank you again. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.